It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, I have Moses and the prophets. Let him listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Father, today, we thank you for the word of God. We pray, Lord, that you would cause our ears and our hearts to be open to receive. I pray that today that you would give somebody an opportunity to hear the word of the Lord today. Maybe someone who in the past, they've just not been open to hear it. They've not been open to receive it. But today, I pray that their heart would be alive and open and quickened to your word. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Luke is the only gospel writer that records this particular account of the rich man and Lazarus. Some commentators suggest that it's an actual event and that it's different from all of the other parables because in this particular parable, this particular account, Jesus literally names the person. Usually he'll say a certain man, but he actually gives the guy a name. And so some would suggest that it's a real event that took place, not just a parable. The two men in this story, in some ways, could not be more opposite than the rich man and Lazarus. But we're going to see in the end of this account how their fortunes change. The rich man, the Bible says, that he went about every day dressed in purple and in fine linen. Now, when we think about purple, in ancient times, they didn't have all the processes that we have today to make colors such as purple. And they captured some type of shellfish or snails. And from them, they just process in which they dyed cloth purple. So it was very expensive and it was a sign of great wealth and of great prosperity. He also wore, the scripture says that he wore fine linen. His linen was an undergarment. The fine linen was his undergarment. And, uh, you know, there's people today who will save all of their money. They'll be poor, 
but they'll save all their money and they'll spend 400 bucks for a jacket. You know what I mean? Or they'll have a $500 pair of shoes. They don't have a pot to pee in where I come from is what they would say. But they'll have on a real expensive jacket or a real expensive piece of clothing. But to help us to remember this guy, he even wore silk underwear. You know what I mean? His undergarment, his underwear. So to help you remember this, the rich guy, he even wore silk underwear, okay? He was the epitome of wealth and prosperity. Every day he lived on an estate. He had gates at the entrance to his property. And every day he feasted. Every day at his house was a feast. Compare him to Lazarus. Lazarus was a man who was sick. His body, we don't know exactly what was wrong with him, other than that the symptoms of whatever disease he had were sores and boils. He was sick to the point that he could not work. He couldn't get around on his own because someone, the Bible says, that he was laid at the rich man's gates. So someone would pick him up and transport him and drop him off at the rich man's place. And he would lay there throughout the day begging, hoping. Because you see, there'll be, this rich man was so wealthy that there were lots of wealthy people that would come to his house. There were lots of wealthy people who would travel through. And the people thought, well, this man has the ability that he can do something for him. The people in this neighborhood, the people who travel through here every day, it would be nothing for them. One of them could solve Lazarus's needs for provision for the rest of his life. Just, just a little bit of mercy, a little bit of compassion. One of them could do it with no problem. But the Bible says that Lazarus longed for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And so from the scripture, it would kind of indicate that the, that the rich man, we don't have any indication that the rich man really ever did anything for Lazarus. Because Lazarus longed for the crumbs. He was like, you know, they don't have to bring me out a plate. Just whatever they throw away, whatever they would waste, Lazarus, he longed for that. The Bible also says that the dogs came and they, they licked Lazarus's sores. And a lot of people, you know, you'll hear commentators, you'll hear people say about how great of a thing that is. You know, here's the thing. The dogs were scavengers in those days. In those days, dogs were, you know, the dog wasn't like your family pet like it is today. You don't spend more money. You know, a lot of people spend more money on getting their dog's haircut than, you know what I'm saying? My dog's haircuts cost more than what my haircuts cost. So getting her nails done and stuff like that, we got to take the dog and get her, her nails done and not like paint them or anything, but. They get her nails clipped. The dogs weren't treated like they are today. Dogs were scavengers. And they were kind of a nuisance. Kind of like seagulls today if you go to the beach. Some of, you, some of our folks are probably already at the beach this weekend. They were scavengers. And so what it was really pointing out is that Lazarus gets really no help at all. No one comes to his aid. No one cares for him. And the scripture tells us that Lazarus died. It's really what it says. Lazarus died. He died. Now, you would think it's kind of merciful that Lazarus died first. Because the hope would be is that as the rich man 
who probably was really oblivious to Lazarus, as the rich man sees that Lazarus dies, there should be something that pricks his conscience. And it says to him, your time is limited too. Do you ever notice that? I read the obituaries like on a pretty regular basis. I'm kind of unique like that maybe. I like to see who died if I knew them. And, and it's always astounds me when people die who are younger than me. I really don't pay a lot of attention to the people who are 98 and die. But when I see someone who is in their 30s or 20s or 40s, you're like, wow, I wonder what happened to him. And, and somehow, you ever notice when we go to a funeral and it's someone who you know, there's something that just for a few moments, it kind of quickens in your heart. And you're like, I really got to be making good decisions. I really need to be redeeming the time because, well, we went to school together and, and he's gone now. Or, or, but for the rich man, there's no indication at all from Scripture. It says that Lazarus died, and the rich man just went on just as normal. It didn't change his life, didn't impact his life. He just went on doing what he normally did. And then we also find that the rich man died, and the Bible says that he was buried. No doubt he was buried with much fanfare. Back in those days, they would have professional mourners who would come in and who would grieve for them. And they would have, depending on your state in the economic structure, depending on where you were buried, a rich man would have a a nice tomb, a nice family tomb, beautiful, elaborate. How many of you remember watching Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember when they came into that, it's a place called Petra. You ever see that, any of you? on TV. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? They come into that place and there's this beautiful stone building that's carved into the rock. How many of you remember that? Okay, some of you do. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Sometimes I don't know what I'm talking about, so that's okay. (laughs) Well, we had a chance to go there when I went to Jordan and it was such an incredible thing. And you see this building, it's really, really literally the size of buildings in Washington, D.C. It's a massive, massive building that's carved into rock. And you know what it was? It was a rich man's tomb. That's what it was built for. These were rich people's places where they would be buried. So this rich man dies and and he has all of this fanfare and everybody knows him and everybody recognizes him. But how quickly these two men's fortunes are going to switch. All of his life, the rich man had anything he wanted, never lacked anything. And he had no concern for Lazarus, no concern for Lazarus. And the funny thing about Lazarus, the scripture teaches us that Lazarus's name, if you, if you understand Lazarus's name, Lazarus's name was a, an abbreviation of the name Eleazar. And Lazarus means one whom God helps. Have you ever been in a position in life where it kind of felt like you're being mocked? Here's Lazarus' name. It's one whom God helps. And every time someone said that to him, one whom God helps, it seemed like someone was mocking him. If God's helping me, why am I so stinking poor? If God's helping me, why can't I get up and go and work like other people do? If God is helping me, why do I have this sickness and disease? If God is helping me, how comes I don't have anything to eat? How comes my stomach hurts from pain? If God is helping me, why is all of this bad stuff taking place in my life? 
That was his name, Lazarus, one whom God helps. The Bible says that they both die. And when they die, here's where the fortunes change. Death takes place when the spirit leaves the body. But friend, death is not the end. It's the beginning of a whole new existence in another world. For the Christian, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. The moment that we're absent from the body as a believer, we become present with the Lord. The apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I'm going to make out better. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain for me. For the unbeliever, death means to to be separated from the presence of God. And death means to be in torment. And that's exactly where this rich man finds himself, in torment. Can you imagine what it would be like to be, we don't know how he went. Maybe he had a heart attack. Maybe he had a long, prolonged period of illness. Or maybe maybe he had an aneurysm. In an instant, his life was gone. We We don't know how it happened. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But can you imagine sitting in comfort and in luxury with all of the food and maybe at, sitting around a pool at his estate? Everything wonderful. And in an instant, he breathes his life's breath and he awakens and he finds himself, the Bible says, he found himself in Hades. He finds himself in torment. He calls out to Father Abraham. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this what? In this fire. I want you to hear this. There will be no answered prayers in hell. There's going to be millions and millions and billions and trillions, and I don't know what goes after that, but there's going to be unlimited numbers of prayers that go up and pleading for mercy in hell, but not one of them will ever, ever, ever be answered. There'll be cries for relief. There'll be cries for deliverance, but not one prayer or one cry for mercy will ever be answered in hell. What is done is done. What is finished is finished. There'll be no compassion there. It's ironic that the rich man who had no pity or compassion for Lazarus in his time of need, but now he's asking for pity. I want you to notice that the rich man, even in hell, he's not changed. Because what does he say? Hey, hey, uh, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Wait, he's, he's that nobody. He's the guy that people have forgotten. Send Lazarus to me. Time to bring me a drink. Time to dip his finger in a cup of water and just touch a drop to my tongue because I'm in agony in this place of torment. But he's not changed. His views have not changed. Whenever he looks up, also the Bible says that he looks up And he sees Abram afar off. And the King James Version says it like this. It says that he sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. The Bible also says that if you look at the King James Version, it says that the angels came and attended to him and transported him to Abram's bosom. But here's what he saw. What he saw 
when the rich man looked up, he saw Father Abraham afar off at a distance. And what they were doing is they were, he, they were at a feast. Because what, here's, the, what, here's what would take place. In those days, in ancient times, and if, actually if you'd go to the Bedouins now in the desert over there, what they do is they'll have a tent set up and they have a very low table and they have mats and pillows all around the table. And people would sit at the table, they would kind of recline or lay on one arm on a pillow at the table. And Father Abraham, who is the patriarch for Israel, he would recognize him. He's a man of great honor, a man to be esteemed, a man to be to be respected. And to his surprise, he sees Lazarus not holding a serving tray, not picking up the dishes, but he sees Abram literally lying beside him, reclining beside him so close that he can speak to him in a place of honor. What an amazing thing. That Lazarus goes from this place of dishonor, of neglect. Whenever he's transported, he's placed in a place of great honor, a place of great respect, a place of intimacy with the man, Abraham. And so when he sees this, he's astonished that, well, what's Lazarus doing there? You'll notice this, that for all of his life, what does it say about Lazarus, Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from his table. And he watched and he couldn't have any. And now the rich man looks and what does he see? He sees this banquet table and he sees Lazarus there feasting. And what does he say? All that you would just give me, just send Lazarus just to dip his finger in a cup of water and touch my tongue so that this pain and this agony would stop. What a reversal of fortunes that takes place in an instant it took place. It says, but it, he asked for that. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in what? An agony. And besides all of that, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. So those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. When a person awakens in hell, there is nothing that anyone can do to change their fortune. No one. No one, no one can provide relief. There is no escape from their agony. In eternity, I want you to understand this. In eternity, this rich man will be fully cognitive. He can see. He sees Lazarus afar off. He sees Abraham afar off. He can hear. He heard the words that Abram said to him. He can feel pain. He can talk, for he talked. He can communicate. He can talk and he can reason in his mind. He can regret and he can remember, but he can't change anything. I want to say it to you again. He can see, hear, feel, talk, reason, regret, and remember, but he can't change anything. Now, hell is going to be a place of great regret. Heaven will also be a place of unimaginable comfort and joy. 
Just as hell is going to be a place of eternal regret, heaven's going to be a place of eternal joy and comfort and delight. Every time you remember your decision to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus, a rush of joy and delight will fill your heart and your mind. It's going to be happening in waves. Every time in heaven, you're, in heaven, you're going to be able to remember. In heaven, you're going to be able to touch and feel and speak and reason. In heaven, every time you think about that decision to follow Jesus, it'll be waves of joy will sweep over your soul again and again. In hell, when that regret is going to wash over them. Again and again, people will remember the opportunities that they had, the choices that they made, and regret will hit them and knock them down again. Have you ever done something? Have you ever, like, escaped a dumb decision? I know some of you. I think some of you have. Just from knowing you, I think that you probably have. Or am I speaking the truth? How many of you have ever... You, you can look back at something and you are going to make a decision and somehow the Lord redirected your life. He redirected your steps. You were going to go one way and God intervened. And sometimes when you think about it, you just start to feel like, almost like it takes your breath away. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine where I'd be. I can't imagine. And, and just thinking about it, kind of like your stomach kind of comes up into your throat and it's like, you know, like I dodged a bullet. You, you know what I mean? I dodged a bullet. Well, I believe in heaven. That's going to be a feeling that people have again and again where they're going to think about, ah, oh, God, I, 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 I can't believe I almost chose that momentary thing. I almost traded all of this, all of this for that moment of pleasure. God, I almost, I almost believed the lie. But thank you that you rescued me. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you chose me. Thank you that I responded to you. And again and again, those waves of joy will roll over us and become greater and greater in our hearts and in our lives. The Bible says that this life is but a vapor. That we're here today and tomorrow it's gone. But you know, eternity goes on and on. The rich man did not go to hell. Sometimes people think the rich man went to hell because he was rich. No, that's stupid. And if the poor man went to heaven because he was poor. No, no, you don't, you don't go to hell or heaven based upon being rich or poor. Abraham was a very wealthy man. He, he was very wealthy. So it's not based upon your riches or your economic state. They ended up where they ended up based upon what they did and the choices that they made while here on this earth. What's life expectancy now for the average man in, an, in America? What do you think? Well, he says 70. Anyone else? 82, 85. Okay, let, let's be generous. 85, you know, 50 used to seem pretty old. Now I'm 49 and like 50 don't, is not seeming that old now. But I am realizing this as I'm getting close to 50. I never noticed this before, but I'm starting to have this feeling of, wow, life's slipping by. You never think you're going to die. But you're like 50. Well, I'll, I'll probably live to 90 or something, but... You know, and I'll probably be in good health and strength, I'm sure. I'm sure the Lord will take good care of me. But even at that, I got more behind me than is ahead of me. Here's the thought. Let's say however old you are. If you're 60 and, and let's say you live to 80, 
or you pick the number and you think about where should you be investing if you have another 30 years in this life, if you have another 40 years in this life, where should your focus be if you have 30 years here and eternity is forever and ever and ever and ever with no end? Which one should you be preparing more for? Which one should you be more focused upon? That's really the point of Jesus' teaching here in many ways. And actually in the first part of this chapter, if you would take the time and go back and read it, Jesus tells another story of a manager who had been asked to give an account of what he did with what the master had entrusted to him. Now, he wasn't a very good manager, and he knew that he was going to lose his job. So he goes to his master's debtors and he tells them, I know that it says you owe a half a million dollars. Let's knock that down to 250,000. I know that it says you owe this much. And so really he defrauded, he really cheated his master and he writes off a part of the people's debts. He took advantage of the possibilities available to him in the present to prepare for the crisis that was just looming in his future. He's going to have to give an account to his master. And I could never understand Jesus commends that guy. Now, you know, where I grew up, I'm just thinking, no, that guy's a, he's a thief. He's a bad guy. But Jesus commends him, not for his lying, but he commends him for the wisdom that he has. You see, like the manager, all men face a crisis in the future when they will stand before God and give an account of themselves to God. Wise men will use their position and resources now so that in the future they're provided for and will receive a welcome into their eternal home. Mark chapter 8, 36 says, For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world? And what? And loses his own soul or forfeits his own soul. Luke chapter 16, verse 8 says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what you see here is what Jesus is teaching by this parable is he's teaching the importance of what you do in this life to prepare for the life to come. And and if you're 50 and you got another 30 years, compare that to eternity. What can I do in this life? What can I use in this life to prepare me for the life to come? When the rich man saw that his situation could not be changed, The scripture says in verse 27, because he came to a point where he realized this is it. This is my state. This is my state for eternity. What a horrible place. Then he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus here again. Hey, send Lazarus to do it to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abram replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This man thought, 
If only Lazarus could be sent to the earthly home. I got five brothers who are living just like me. It's ironic that this rich man, he understood what the fate of his brothers was if they did not change. He says, I got five brothers who are living just like I am. You can't get me out. I don't want them to come to this place of torment. Maybe if Lazarus rises from the dead, maybe they'll listen. Surely they'll listen. They'll repent. They'll change the direction of their life. Abraham's answer must have shocked him. Because here's what Abram says to, or Abram says to him. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets. So that in essence, they have the Old Testament. And what he says to him is, the word of God is sufficient to change a man's life. And if they will not listen to the word of God, they possess the word of God in which even the law breathed God's love. If they would not listen to God's word, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I want you to hear me clearly. The word of God is sufficient. It's truly all that is needed. The scripture tells us, you see, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's why we must preach the gospel to those who are far from God. Because the word will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. See, the word of God, when it goes forth, it will accomplish what it was sent to do. When we declare the word in a place like this, here's the thing. The word brings conviction and it stirs someone's heart. And then there's a choice that they get to make. And he says, if they won't respond to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, if they won't respond to the word of God, even if somebody was risen from the dead, they wouldn't change anyhow because their hearts are so hard. Here's the thing for you. If you won't respond to the word of God, it doesn't matter what dog and pony show goes in front of you. You won't respond because the heart becomes hard and becomes indifferent. And the word of God breaks the hard heart. If you allow it to. Now here's the reality. They wanted a sign. (laughs) They wanted a sign. The irony is, here's the irony of it. A short time later, Jesus raises another man from the dead who had been dead in the tomb for four days named Lazarus. And what did the religious people want to do then? Actually, they sought how they might kill him and Jesus. They didn't repent. They sought a way. How can we kill this guy? How can we destroy this guy? And the same thing is Jesus has risen from the dead. And again and again, people's hearts become indifferent and cold and callous to him. I want to just talk about two things real quick. The first one is, as a pastor, the sad thing, the sad reality is that there's going to be a lot of people. The Bible says that, what did we say a few weeks ago about hell? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. It's broad. And how many go? Many there be that follow it. Narrow is the way. It's it's narrow. Narrow and straight. And what does it say? Few there be that find it. So the reality is, is if we believe what Scripture says, ACDC had it right. Many people literally are on a highway to hell. They're literally, they're literally headed straight for that. 
But the beautiful thing is, is when the gospel comes forth, the Holy Spirit convicts men and women's hearts. And he pricks their hearts and he says, you're not right with God. You're not in the place that you need to be. But here's the reality. As a pastor, there will be people. There will be people who will, in hell, they will awaken and they will remember the messages that their pastor preached. They'll remember the times that the Holy Spirit convicted their heart and they almost responded. They will remember, their minds will be filled with memories of the times and the opportunities in which they had to respond to the gospel. And they said, well, it's not a good time now. Maybe later. If that's you, my friend, the best decision you can ever make, the best decision you can ever make is to surrender your will and your life to Jesus. You know, the crazy thing is, I've never given him anything in this life. Not in the life to come. We haven't gotten there yet. I've never surrendered to him anything in this life that he didn't give me something back so much better. He's never, I had a neighbor who I used to trade cars with when we were little kids, and he was older than me and a little smarter. And he could always get me to trade my good cars for his junky cars. And I'd come back to the house and they're like, well, how'd you get all these junky cars? Well, he somehow talked me into it. I've never traded anything with God where he didn't give me something back better. Never. And that doesn't include the life to come yet. That's just in this life. Because he's a good God. He's a gracious God. Today is a day in which mercy is abundance. That no matter what a person's done, no matter how hard their heart is, no matter what sin, what thing held them, there is nothing that you could possibly do today that would cause God to reject you. No matter what you've done, His blood is strong enough and powerful enough to forgive you of all your sins and to cleanse you from your unrighteousness and to give you a new name. Write your name in glory. His blood is powerful enough. But there's going to come a day when time is over. There's coming that day. The other thing is I want to talk to you about is this. There's a lot of parents, and I think about moms and, and, and brothers and sisters. Let's talk to moms real quick, just on Mother's Day. You know, your, your kids, some of you know that your kids aren't in the right place. They're not. If Jesus came, you know that they, they would not go to heaven. And they want to come and give you a, a, a candy, and they want to make you happy and take you out to dinner. Can I ask you to do something? Can I ask you? I know that you're godly moms and that you pray for them and, and you're godly aunts and that you care about them. Can I ask you to be bold this week? Can I ask you to be bold in their lives? And that you, you talk to them and say, you know what? Thank you for the candy and thank you for the dinner. My mom and dad did that to me all the time. I want you to know what's important to me. The most important thing on earth is that you and I spend eternity with Jesus. I don't care what awards you receive. I'm happy for them. I don't care about all the things you accomplish in your life. I'm, I'm thrilled with them. The greatest thing that you can ever do for me is to assure me that when I leave this life, that I'll see you again. When you love somebody, when you care for them, we need to have that conversation. Some of us need to have that conversation with family members and with friends and co-workers. And if you love them, that we talk to them and say, I've made Jesus. You know, the funny thing is my mom said when my sister got saved, my sister Terry got saved, she would say to my mom, Mom, I want Jesus to come tonight. Mom, I, I, she accepted Jesus. She said, Mom, I accepted Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Mom said, no. And she said, say to her, she'd say, Mom, I'm going to pray that Jesus comes tonight. 
And mom said, please don't pray that because if you pray that, your daddy and I can't go to heaven. We wouldn't go to heaven without you. But God used a five-year-old little girl to convict, to bring the Holy Spirit conviction to a mom and a dad. It changed their lives. It changed our whole family. Our whole family's been changed because of that. Because that little girl saying to mom, I'm going to pray for Jesus to come tonight. Mom said, you can't because we're not ready. I want to know today, in this room, maybe there's some people. As you bow your heads and as you close your eyes, I would be, I would fail you as your pastor if I didn't call some of you to a place of repentance. Because the word of God is alive and it's working in this room. And statistics would just say that there's some folks in a room this size that if Jesus came tonight, if you entered into eternity, that you would not be ready. You wouldn't be ready to meet him. You'd be like my mom who would say, don't pray that because if Jesus comes, we, we wouldn't go to heaven. And if you're in this room today, just very quickly, the Holy Spirit is here and he's pointing out to you that you got some things in your life that, that you're not ready to meet the Lord. Just, we're not gonna hesitate, just quickly. Can I just ask you to raise your hand just very quickly across this room? All right, yes, yep, yep. Any others? All right, yep, all right. Why don't all of you stand with me? Just stand with me. There's, there's a number of folks here in our midst the Holy Spirit's at work. Now, there's some other folks of you here today with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I want to say this to you. You would say, Pastor, I'm failing. I'm not preaching condemnation, but you just say, I'm going to just tell you the truth. You'd say, Pastor, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to with my family and with some of my friends who are away from the Lord. I'm busy about other things, and I've, I've, I've been falling short on caring about their soul, and I need to. Just as a sign to the Lord, I'm going to make a commitment right now that I'm going to go, and I I got people who I'm going to talk to today. If that's you, I got people who I need to talk to today. The next time I see them, I need to speak to them about their relationship with the Lord. Can I just see your hand? Everybody around this place, all right? Now, if you raise your hand, I want you to do something about it. Don't just lift up your hand because you're making a vow before God today that God is going to use you And you're going to partner with him to see people's lives changed. Now, for those five of you today who just raised your hand, you said, Pastor, I'm not in the place. If Jesus comes, I'm not ready. I'm not in the place that I need to be. I'm going to pray with you. And we're going to pray with you as a congregation. And we're going to dedicate your life to the Lord. And would you just pray with me, Lord Jesus? I've heard your word spoken today. And you've convicted my heart. You love me. You've pursued me. And I'm responding to your invitation of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy. In this time, I choose to surrender myself to your lordship in my life. I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe that Jesus died and that he rose again on the third day. I believe in you as my Savior and Lord. I've confessed my sins before you and I believe that you will forgive me and impart to me your righteousness. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And thank you for establishing me in Jesus' name.
Amen. Now, here's the thing. I also want to say this to you. Those of you, the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart. He's pricked your heart. You got that person you need to talk to today. You got that relative that you need to call. And you think it's crazy. You think it's foolish. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say to me at funerals, I felt like I was supposed to speak to him. I felt like I was supposed to go. And I didn't. I can't tell you how many times I've seen those things. As the Holy Spirit speaks to you today, you know what? God is going to use you and he's going to flow through you. Father, I pray your blessing upon your people today. I ask, Father, as people have made a commitment to either rededicate themselves to you or for the first time to follow you, I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower them and you would transform them from the inside out and that they would never be the same again in Jesus' name. And we give you praise for that. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.